this thing I have in my hand. For those of you listening on podcasts, it is a Bible. Is this a spiritual resource or a physical resource? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, right? It's a spiritual yeah. resource, but the way that I apprehend it is by opening my physical eyeballs, right? And right. Uh, oh. and absorbing the text or by sitting in a congregation and hearing someone read the text, uh, right? It, right. We already kind of have like a little bit of a framework of that in the sacred scriptures, which would have been the most important thing in our universes as as evangelical Protestants. Mm-hmm. And we might not have like taken a whole bunch of time to articulate the whole metaphysics of that, but we were very clearly having something that was our North Star for everything that was both a physical thing and a spiritual thing. to another turnkey episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swain, along with my colleagues Ken Hensley and Kenny Burchard. They were both pastors in various denominational traditions, and we've been going through a series on the church, what we used to think the church was in those worlds we came from. I was an evangelical myself. And what the Catholic Church says about what the Catholic Church is. You can find previous episodes and all kinds of other resources at chnetwork.org. Again, chnetwork.org for that. Uh, We also have an online community where you can engage with other people who are asking these and other kinds of questions related to Catholicism. Go to community.chnetwork.org. And of course, all this made possible through the support of viewers like you. So if you appreciate what you're hearing and want to Help us keep doing it. Go to chnetwork.org slash compass. Ken, Kenny, how are you? Doing good. I'm turnkey. That was a, that was a great <laughs> turnkey. turnkey opening. That was very nice. Very nice. Well, really. we like to think I was, that uh, <laughs> a lot of the groundwork has already been done for you. You can just sort of walk in and, you know, some of the thoughts have already been thought for you. That's right. <laughs> it's kind of turnkey. It's turnkey. Awesome. That, that being said, yeah. this, this question of what the church is that's been driving this whole series, big. it was a big deal for us. Uh, it maybe not was not as big of a deal for us when we were first young Christians. You know, what does it matter what the church is and, and am I in it? But I think, you know, especially seeing divisions among Christians, especially trying to figure out in your cases, you know, what it meant to be pastor of a church, like what is the church, this thing that I'm supposed to be uh, a part of. And uh, that, that question raises a whole bunch of other questions about what did Jesus come to do? <laughs> so all this is in the background of why we wanted to address this topic. And uh, just to, to put it out there as well, um, this is not just like my random thoughts about what the church is or Ken or Kenny's random thoughts about what the church is. We've been going through the catechism of the Catholic Church, which is a official teaching document of the Catholic Church. So as we're trying to tell you what the Catholic Church says the Catholic Church is, <laughs> we're actually using the Catholic Church as our, as our source material. There you so. Go. Kenny, uh, I know you're going to be kicking things off this week, but I, uh, if you could set the stage for us and then dive into um, the paragraph that we're going to be starting at this week. Yeah, absolutely. For those who might want to grab their catechism, we're looking at 11 uh, paragraphs today, uh, 770 through 780. And we're talking about the mystery of the church. And I, I like what you said at the beginning there, Matt. Um, maybe we when, when we were younger, uh, Christians, the theme or theology of church wasn't as important as it was, you know, later on. In 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 my case, 
um, for 20 years of my life, church was everything. It was, it was what I did for a living. It was what I did. Uh, it was how I engaged other Christians, you know, as a pastor. And so I thought a lot about church, doing church, having church, what the church is, um, you know, ecclesiology, this big uh, theological theme. And um, so I'm really glad that we're, in, in a sense, this series is, at least for me, um, the one that's closest to my heart, you know, when I think about my past, uh, because it church was just so much a part of a part of my life. And so hopefully we'll be able to help uh, folks see how we've, you know, evolved and emerged along as we become Catholics. This section is 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 really important too. Um, it's the section on the mystery of the church. This is the title of the section of the catechism. And we need to unpack that, and the catechism is going to help us to do it in at least three big ways that we're going to look at today. First, we're going to look at the church as a visible and spiritual organism. And then second, Ken is going to cover uh, the mystery of the church as the place in which God's eternal plan is both revealed and fulfilled in history. And then we'll look at the paragraphs that discuss the church as the universal sacrament of salvation. And Ken, as he likes to do, will bring us in for a landing and tie it all together and wrap it in a big old bow. But like I said, this section on the church begins with the concept of mystery. Now, in the entire section on the church in the catechism, this word mystery is used around two dozen times. So it's the concept of mystery, if I can say it this way, is integral to Catholic ecclesiology. It's a mega theme. It happens over and over again. And mystery does not mean, from a, from a Catholic theological perspective, something that is currently murky or muddy or hidden or shrouded in darkness and shadow. Mystery means that that's how it used to be, <laughs> but now it's not anymore. In other words, now we can see because something has happened, God has gotten involved in all these hidden and murky and shrouded things and made it so that we can see what he was up to all along. So mystery is more about revelation than it is about hiddenness. Something that was hidden is no longer hidden. Now, with eyes of faith, we can see it. And we're looking at three ecclesial mysteries today. The first is in paragraph 770. Um, now, before I read that, do either of you want to say anything about all this introductory stuff that I've said so far? No, it sounded fairly turnkey. The one thing okay. that I will say before we get into this is just a, a quick note about about mystery um, in that when the church talks about mystery, we're not talking about something that's impossible to know, even though it's been revealed. Right. Um, there are right. certain early Gnostic heresies, right? And there are even like sort of progressive theological schools today who would say, well, you can't know anything about God. You just can't right. know anything, right? And the church says, well, we can know we can know a couple things, <laughs> right? And mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. so, certain things have been revealed. So not we don't know in full, but mystery means right. we've got a window into it. Exactly. It's a, a Mystery is about revelation. So we can say it this way. As we look at the mysteries of the church, what we're looking at is what has God 
showed us about what he's up to in the world and how the church is integral to that. Uh, the church in the plan of God insofar as we are able to know it now. That's really the big idea behind this episode. And, um, and so let's, let's look guys at, at paragraph 770. Let me read it and then just draw out some big ideas here. The catechism says, quote, the church is in history. <laughs> this reminds me of when I was preaching and I would read a text of scripture and then I would stop and say, now that's important. So, so here it is. The church is in history, but at the same time, she transcends it. It is only with the eyes of faith that one can see her in her visible reality. Now, here comes a Catholic word. And <laughs> at the same time, in her spiritual reality as the bearer of divine life. So notice the integration here of concepts or ideas. There's no attempt in Catholic ecclesiology to set these ideas of the church being in history and the church transcending history as being in opposition or even juxtaposition uh, to each other. Remember, guys, in the in the first episode, we talked about visible and invisible, and I used the metaphor of scales, and I said, well, in my previous ecclesiology, the church weighed more heavily on the invisible side than it does on the visible side. Well, in, in Catholic ecclesiology, there's no scale of, well, is it more invisible than visible? Is it more visible than spiritual? Rather, the Catholic perspective is that it is spiritual and visible, and it is 100% integrated in both of those ways. Uh, both aspects are included. And so this got me thinking about my previous perspective of how I would juxtapose visible and invisible. That's just not a Catholic thing. Not, it's, it's not our impulse to do that as Catholics. Rather, visible and spiritual. Now notice, invisibility is not the is not a synonym for spiritual in Catholic ecclesiology because lots of invisible things are not necessarily spiritual. Rather, it is that the church is visible and spiritual. This idea has to do with domains. I, I was thinking a lot about this, try to hash out quite a lot of it with Ken. Um, I don't want to stress because the catechism doesn't stress visible versus or even and invisible, but rather visible and spiritual as domains and dimensions. This is the word dimensions is the word that the catechism uses. That the church exists fully in both the domain of the visible and in the domain or dimension of the spiritual world. In the world of time, space, and matter, and in the world of the spirit where God dwells. And, um, when I thought about how this worked before, guys, you, you may have your, your own ideas about this. Um, I thought about it in terms of concentric circles. So think of it this way. If you ask me, Kenny, how do you understand the visible church? I would have said the local church is the visible church. So the church that I was pastoring was the visible church. Then as we go out and there's other churches in the town, in the city, maybe in the state, in the region, and across the world, the further out we get from that inner circle of the church I was part of, the more the church, in my mind, was invisible. 
And, um, and that's kind of how I thought about it. And now as a Catholic, I, I, I'll have to say I understand that I thought that way, but it just isn't how I think anymore. Now, as I see from a Catholic perspective, the church is visible no matter how far out from the innermost concentral, concentric circle, which would be my parish church, I get. I can see the visible church everywhere in the world. Um, I can see the church that Jesus founded is a visible and a spiritual church. It has an earthly visible head. It has an earthly, it has earthly and visible shepherds. It has earthly and visible meeting places. It has earthly and visible resources and tools, earthly and visible human members. And it does work in the earthly and visible world. Think of the things, for instance, that Jesus talked about in Matthew. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. Those are things being done in with time, space, and matter in a very visible world. But it also transcends those as well. Uh, and, and there's just two more ideas I want to cover here in order, to, in order to help you understand at least how I was able to grasp this Catholic concept, and then I'll toss it to you guys for dialogue. Visible and spiritual, uh, or let's say physical, time, space, and matter, and spiritual. Well, the first illustration of this is the human person. As a human being, I have both aspects in my identity. And if I'm missing one of them, then something is wrong with me. In fact, I, <laughs> I'm not existing as a fully human person. So, for instance, here, this is a little thought experiment. If you see a physical body without a spirit, what are you looking at? You're looking at a corpse. Yeah, you're looking if at a you zombie. See a, yeah, or a zombie. <laughs> if you see a spirit without a body, what are you looking at? Well, you're looking at a ghost, a ghost. like, uh, like, uh, yeah, like the disciples thought they had seen a ghost walking on the water, you know, when Jesus was walking on the water. And in the same way, so I can't be human if I can't be existing fully as a human if one of those aspects is missing from my identity, or if I'm, am I more this or more that? I have to have a I have to be fully embodied, and I have to have a spirit. And both of those have to be integral to and completely related to each other in order for me to be existing fully as a human. And in the same way, the church has its fullness of existence in both a fully visible and physical reality, and both and a spiritual, and in some cases, invisible capacity. And these are not juxtaposed. They're not in opposition to each other. They are what it takes in order for the church to be what it is. And then the, the second idea really is, is Christological, is in, in Jesus himself. We say Jesus is what? Fully God and fully man. And, you know, people mess up and they make mistakes when they try to say, well, is he more human than divine or is he more divine than human? And the church is always saying both and fully, both and fully. And so first idea right out of the gate here, guys, in Catholic ecclesiology, it is impossible to conceive of the church if we are not seeing it fully 
as a visible reality in the world, existing in time, space, and matter, and having visible structures and aspects to it, and understanding that it also transcends those visible things and exists in the world and domain of the spirit. So let me just stop right there and pass it to you guys. I like paragraph 771 to fill that out, and I hope you're going to at least like read through some of that because the because the illustrations and metaphors there are so powerful. Let me yeah. let me just say this at this point. On the one hand, I struggle as we're reading through the catechism here. This is episode four on the church, because on well, on the one hand, there's really nothing that I've seen so far that I could not have said in a certain way about the church when I was a Baptist pastor. Sure. Even I believed it was visible. I believed it was invisible, and yet I and yet I know this. One of the first things I ever read in Catholic theology were a series of articles that were sent to me that were on the church as the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And all I can say is I know for sure that when I was sitting and reading those articles, I was thinking, this is new. This is not. This is different. This is this is more than what I believed before. And I guess I won't go beyond that at this point, except to say that I believed it was visible, I believed it was invisible, and yet when I was exposed to Catholic ecclesiology, it, it began to strike me right away that the language that was being used, the kinds of images and metaphors, it, that it just went beyond what I had thought before. And um, mm -hmm. you know, I'll leave it at that mm -hmm. for now. Yeah, if I could add to that. So, um, well, first of all, what I'll what I'll say is if, if the church is just a holy, a really holy institution, then that's one thing. But if the church is the body of Christ, uh, and we know who Christ is, as you were saying, fully human and fully divine, and we are his body, then that makes sense. But I was just going to say, in response to what you um, mentioned, Ken, like, it was new, but it also kind of wasn't new. Like, it touched on some stuff that I already kind of had points of reference for, but hadn't articulated. So I'll give you the, I'll give you the readiest example that comes to my mind. So... This thing I have in my hand, for those of you listening yeah. on podcasts, it is a Bible. Is this a spiritual resource or a physical resource? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, right? It's a spiritual yeah. resource, but the way that I apprehend it is by opening my physical eyeballs, right? And, right. Uh, oh. and absorbing the text or by sitting in a congregation and hearing someone read the text, uh, right? It, Right. We already kind of have like a little bit of a framework of that in the sacred scriptures, which would have been the most important thing in our universes as as evangelical Protestants. Mm -hmm. And we might not have like taken a whole bunch of time to articulate the whole metaphysics of that, but we were very clearly having something that was our North Star for everything that was both a physical thing and a spiritual thing. And we wouldn't say, well, is the Bible more of a physical thing or a or a spiritual thing, I don't know that we would have been able to dice that up because we would have said, well, the word of God comes by hearing, right? You know, it's the salvation yeah. comes through through hearing. So <laughs> I think at least for me, it was new, but there was stuff that mm -hmm. I already kind of believed and thought that set the stage for me to kind of wrap my mind around it mm -hmm. a little bit, as it were. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, so I think this is really important depending on our impulse, you know. Um, I, I have what I, I personally call Protestant impulses that I've had to get over. And one of them is just to grab onto the word or, or to put things in opposition to each other as a natural way of, of sorting through them. The catechism is working really hard and Catholic ecclesiology is working really hard 
to get us to not do that with our ecclesiology uh, or our Christology and lots of other things. Don't say or about everything. Say and. (laughs) And so watch what happens now with that in paragraph 771. This is is really going to take off now in terms of the Catholic impulse to hold these two realities together, even if in tension. So here in paragraph 771, we read beginning here, quote, the one mediator, Christ, in case you, by the way, wonder how many mediators uh, Catholics think there are between God and man, the one mediator, Christ, (laughs) established and ever sustains here on earth his holy church, the community of faith, hope, and charity, as a visible organization through which he communicates truth and grace to all men. The church is at the same time, now watch all of these, a society structured with hierarchical organs and the mystical body of Christ. Let me just say something right there. What what the catechism is doing there is saying, yes, the church is visible in time, and you can even see it through its hierarchical organs, its bishops and its pastors and its cardinals and even uh, the Holy Father, the Pope. But it also transcends that and exists in the heavenly places as well, which is what is meant by the mystical body of Christ, that the church is both on earth and in heaven at the same exact time. The next part says, the visible society and the spiritual community, the earthly church and the church endowed with heavenly riches. These dimensions together, and this, this is that's the word that's so helpful. And like you have a catechism, you might want to circle that word dimensions, because I think it is the word that captures this aspect of Catholic ecclesiology. These two dimensions of the church's existence together constitute one complex reality, which comes together from a human and divine element. Now it gets really fun. Two more paragraphs. The church is essentially both, circle all the Catholic words here, the church is essentially both human and divine, visible but endowed with invisible realities, zealous in action and dedicated to contemplation, present in the world but as a pilgrim, so constituted that in her human, in her, the human is directed toward and subordinated to the divine, the visible to the indivisible, invisible, action to contemplation, and this present world to that city yet to come, the object of our quest. And then finally this. O humility, O sublimity, both tabernacle of cedar and sanctuary of God, earthly dwelling and celestial palace, house of clay and royal hall, body of death and temple of light, and, (laughs) this Catholic word just keeps popping up in the catechism, and at last both object of scorn to the proud and bride of Christ, she is black but beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem, for even if the labor and pain of her long exile may have discolored her, yet heaven's beauty has adorned her. And there the catechism invites us to hold all of these otherwise disparate 
um, ideas in unity and intention together. So I just love it. Yeah, I love those images. And the, the black but beautiful comes from the Song of Solomon. I don't know what passage it is, but that's what it comes from. Um, yeah, I love those images. Great. And I'm, I, I won't say anything more here because I'm ready just to charge forward with the next section. Anything, Matt? I mean, just to say, <clears throat> here's where you, you, you said it earlier, uh, Kenny. The word and is a very Catholic word. I just want to make sure that when you were saying that this is a Catholic word, that everybody knew that you were using the word "and." It's all it's yeah, all "and." It's my and favorite. when you see when you see places, uh, you know, where where things are getting out off kilter, uh, either denominationally or even within like kind of arguments within the church, it's because someone mm -hmm. has like mm -hmm. emphasized action in opposition to contemplation, or contemplation right. in opposition to action, right. or um, has you know tried to pit the hierarchical organs of the church against the mystical body of Christ or tried to pit um, the the earthly church against the heavenly reality of the church. And, and in fact, the church is always saying, no, always, always and, always and. Yeah. Part of my impulse when I was younger was to choose the thing that I thought was most important. And I'd say, well, even if we don't have this, at least we have this, and this is the thing that's more important. And and the the teaching of the church is that it all matters. It all matters. Mm -hmm. All of the visible elements and dimensions of the church and the spiritual and invisible elements, they all matter, and they all are equally um, what the church is comprised of. So. Okay. Right, back well, to let's you, uh, let's okay. rock and roll then, and uh, keep on going because again, we're just reading straight out of the catechism, <laughs> you know, here because yeah, um, the work has been done for us. Again, it is is a bit of a turnkey sort of operation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what we're moving forward toward now then is is the church as that place in which the eternal plan of God is being revealed and being fulfilled. And so, let me read paragraph seven seventy two to la launch it. It is in the church that Christ fulfill, fulfills and reveals his own mystery as the purpose of God's plan to unite all things in him. Let me read that again. It is in the church that Christ fulfills and reveals or reveals and fulfills his own mystery, Christ's own mystery as the purpose of God's plan, which was to unite all things in him. He's quoting St. Paul there. And then continuing, St. Paul calls the nuptial union of Christ and the church a great mystery. There's that word mystery again. Because she is united to Christ as to her bridegroom, she becomes a mystery in her turn, okay? Because, she, because the church is united to Christ as the bride to the bridegroom, she becomes a mystery in her turn. Contemplating this mystery, Paul exclaims, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, there, there is so much here, and I want to try to unpack what I view as being essential and what, what's being communicated here. First, notice, guys, that the catechism speaks here of how God's purpose, which was, which has been from all eternity, to unite all things in him, that is in Christ, God's purpose, we see this purpose stated most clearly in St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, by the way. In chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, where Paul said this, In him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace or having made peace through the blood of his cross. Okay, so first, 
What the Catechism is stating here is that, is that the purpose of God in Christ is nothing less than really the reversal of the fall, the, the reconciliation of a world that has been, been broken and shattered and alienated from communion with God. You know, as Paul said in one place, in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. The purpose of God in Jesus is nothing less than the reversal of this uh, of the fall, of the history of the human race from the fall. And then notice it says, secondly, the catechism, it's telling us that it's in this church that God both reveals this eternal plan and God fulfills it. Okay? Now, I, I personally have loved, I, I love how the book of Acts begins, and I'm sure you guys do too. Um, I love how, you know, it begins, you know, uh, uh, Luke writing, he says this, in the first book, referring to his gospel, the gospel of Luke, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. And I remember the first time I heard someone say, notice, you know, someone preaching say, uh, no, no, notice he said that his, his gospel, the gospel of Luke, is about everything Jesus began both to do and to teach until he was taken up. And the idea was, once Jesus is taken up and seated at the right hand of the Father, and he pours out his spirit into his people, then Jesus continues. In other words, the book of Acts is part two. If, if Luke is about all that Jesus began to do and teach, Acts is about all that Jesus continued to do and to teach after he was taken up. And that's why when you come to that wonderful passage in Acts chapter 9, where Paul is on his way to Damascus with letters from the high priest to bring all of those who were believers in Christ to bring them in chains back to Jerusalem. When he meets with Jesus and Jesus speaks to him from heaven, he says, I mean, it's not inconsequential that he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting those who love me and who follow me and have taken up their cross? No, he says, why are you persecuting me? To which Paul responds by saying, well, something like, who are you, Lord? Or who's speaking? Who are you? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Luke is about everything Jesus began to do and teach. Acts is about everything Jesus continued to do and teach after he was raised and seated at the right hand of the Father. And, and, and doing this through his church. In other words, the church is, in some important sense, the continuation of the incarnation. It is the continuation of Christ. That's why Paul speaks of Jesus as the head and the church as his body on earth. You have a head and you have a body. You have a complete person. You have in the church the continuation of Jesus's work on earth. So the church is the body of Christ in which God's plan to unite all things in Christ is revealed and is fulfilled, or to use the image that that uh, the Catechism uses here in 772, Saint Paul calls the nuptial union of Christ and the Church a great mystery, because she is united to Christ as to her bridegroom. She becomes a mystery in turn. So, Kenny, in your first little sermon here today, you gave the illustrations of the human person as both body and soul. And, uh, and of the incarnation. Well, here we kind of move this thing forward 
to say the same thing now is true of the church. The church is Christ's body. The church is Christ's bride. If Christ is God's mystery revealed to the world, the church becomes Christ's God's mystery revealed to the world in which his eternal plan to reconcile all things in his son is both revealed and is being fulfilled. And let me just take a pause at this point before I ask the next important question. Any any comments at all from you two? I, I would say, Ken, the thing that, that I love so much about what you've, you've shared so far is the concept of the church as the reversal of the fall. I love that language, and it, it provokes in me the idea of a thought experiment that we could do with the story of the Bible and how the church fills that up. And we could say, what would the world look like if Adam and his bride had fully filled up their vocation to be to image God, to be fruitful and multiply, mm-hmm. to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. What would that look like if, if they hadn't failed? What it would look like is Jesus and his bride <laughs> being fruitful and multiplying mm-hmm. disciples all over the earth until mm-hmm. uh, until the earth is covered with the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea, until everything is made into what it's supposed to be. In other words, the trajectory of the biblical story is filled up in the relationship between the second man right. and his bride, the church. So it's just such a beautiful, uh, not only picture, but reality of what God's doing in the world. I can't help in all this to just uh, keep on going back to this idea of the analogical versus dialectical uh, mm-hmm. distinction mm-hmm. of the dialectical being like the either or um, the we are Christians against the whole wide world and like all these physical things that we see are just like, you know, corruptions and we're longing for that day um, versus the analogical way that Catholics think about everything, which is like, okay, if it's like a marriage in this way, in what other ways is this all like a marriage? Um, and, you know, in some ways, as you're going through this and talking about St. Paul's images here, like there's certain things that people can know about what your marriage is from your obituary, right? <laughs> you know, there's, there's going to be like this description, Ken Hensley was married, you know, whatever, had X amount of children at the end, bye, right? There's certain things that people can know uh, about that, you know, relationship between you and Tina from if they discover like your emails or text messages, right? The written words that you left behind. But there's certain things that there's only kind of known through that that relationship, that building, that like there's this whole like even unspoken element mm-hmm. to it. There's the mystery um, that kind of like flows through the whole thing. Uh, and... Again, this is so much different than than what a lot of um, the worlds I came from were in terms of ecclesiology. Ecclesiology being like I don't know how I call it, uh, like an ecclesiology ecclesiology of shared preference, or an ecclesiology of like common emphasis, or an ecclesiology of like here are the people who all like get it right. As far as I'm concerned, these people all get it <laughs> right, and that's right, why we right. all go to the same church. Um, Whereas a marriage is much more of kind of like a mysterious thing that you can't like, you can't really even put all the way into words. Um, and there is sort of that, there's a there's both a very visible and tangible element to that, a physical element, obviously, um, or there's no kids to write about in that obituary, right? But there's also this deeply spiritual element to it. I, I just, the, the images that, 
the church uses, which build on the images from Scripture, just they continue to unpack something, and you start to realize, you know, going back even to the people of Israel, when they are unfaithful to God, God doesn't say, you are... Um, you are errant creations, you are broken creatures, you are bad children. I mean, sometimes there's that language in it, but more often than not, it's like you are an unfaithful spouse, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's sort of building all the way through. Um, I just think that image for marriage just really, it opens the door to a lot of different layers of understanding of what the church actually is or and what it's intended to be from from the, well, as you just said, Kenny, the from the dawn mm-hmm. of creation. Okay, so so in what sense I would ask next then in 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 what sense or how is the purpose of God revealed and fulfilled in the church? In what sense? What's he talking about in practical terms? And and for this, listen to what Saint Paul writes in Ephesians chapter three, because the words we've been using kind of all t- come together here. Paul is writing to the churches in Ephesus in the in the area of Ephesus, and he says this: For this reason, I Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. There's that word mystery again. So follow carefully. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. The mystery, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, And here it is. He says, that is, here's the mystery that was hidden before and has now been revealed, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This was according to the eternal purpose which he had realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, so we're talking about Adam and Eve. We're talking about the fall of the human race. We're talking about the alienation of the human race because of sin and death from God and God's eternal plan being a reversal of that and the reconciliation of all things. Again, Colossians chapter one, where Paul says, in him, God's plan to reconcile all things to himself and his son, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And here he says that this mystery in practical terms is this, that the Gentiles our fellow heirs. And you know, it's funny when I read that, even now you you can tend to say, Oh, okay. Before it was Jews. And so now it's Jews and Gentiles. That doesn't sound so big until you stop and realize that Jews and Gentiles in Paul's mind is everyone. Okay. (laughs) That's everyone there is. There's the Jews and then everyone else is the Gentiles. So Paul is essentially saying, you know, I grew up thinking that this blessing was for me as a Jew. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, all of that. I I grew up believing that it was for me. And even when Paul read the prophets that said that that if the people of Israel were obedient to God, he would make them a nation of priests and he would make them a light to the Gentiles. The the images that, that the Jews at Jesus' time had, and rightfully in a way, taken from the prophets, were images of the Gentile nations coming to the Jews to learn everything. And the Jews would still be, if you will, top dog. It was the Jews, and then it was all the Gentile nations coming to the Jews to learn about God. But 
the mystery that was hidden from all those ages and has been revealed to Paul now is, no, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, no male, no female, no slave, no Scythian, no Greek, no this or that, no, no, um, you know, Californian, no New Yorker, all are one in Christ. And, and so, so tying it together, what Paul is saying here is, Paul is saying to the Ephesians, and you can catch it in his tone, he's saying, my mind is blown by what has been revealed to me now, that in Christ, the reconciliation of the entire world is taking place, and it includes everyone. The, the mystery of God's eternal purpose that is revealed is revealed in the church to Paul in the church and is fulfilled in the church is when we see every is when we see people from every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every people worshiping together in the one church of Christ. And so now let me become a little practical here because this is one question, gentlemen, that really came to me while I was still a Protestant and beginning to think through the case for the Catholic Church. How is this eternal purpose that we've been talking about, how is this purpose revealed in a church that is broken up into hundreds and thousands of competing sects and ecclesial communities and churches? How is this, how is this eternal purpose of God to unite all things in Christ, the church being his body, the church being his bride, how, how is it revealed in a world where we have thousands of separate churches that are in such fundamental disagreement with one another that they can't even meet together in the same building. They can't organize together. They can't plan. They can't carry out uh, ministries in the world together, but instead focus on converting one another. In his work, his great work against heresies, written in 180 AD, written in the 180s, so very early, Irenaeus talks about the unity of the church and the unity of the Christian tradition that at the time had been embraced throughout the world. And I, and I want to just read it to you. As I said before, the church, having received this preaching and this faith from, from the, that is from the apostles, although she is disseminated throughout the world, yet guarded it as if she occupied but one house. She likewise believes these things just as if she had but one soul and one and the same heart. And harmoniously, she proclaims these things, these, these teachings. She teaches them and she hands them down as if she possessed but one mouth. For the churches which have been planted in Germany do not believe or hand down anything different, nor do those in Spain, nor do those in Gaul, southern France at this point, nor those in the east, nor those in Egypt. Do you, do you hear what Irenaeus is saying? At the time, and this is 180 AD, from between 180 and 190 or so when he's writing against heresies, this all fits with what Paul's saying here. The eternal purpose of God, the reversal of the fall, is revealed in the church, and it's fulfilled in the church, but only when people can look at the church and they can say, wow, this message is being preached as though this church, even though it's scattered all over the world, has but one mouth and believes just one thing and is acting as one church. Um, another way, and I'll conclude my sermon with this, and it 
it really has become <laughs> a sermon. Another way of putting this is to simply quote Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, where Jesus said, praying to the Father, I do not pray for these only, referring to his immediate apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, so that, so that, in order that the world may believe that thou hast sent me and hast loved them even as thou hast loved me. The only way in which God's eternal plan to reconcile all things in Christ is revealed and is fulfilled is in a world where people can point and say, there is the Christian mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so good, Ken. I, I was struck by that, that whole sermon you just preached there. I can't remember if it was our, on our staff uh, chat a day or two ago or something I saw online um, that, that connects very much to what, you're, what you just said. Someone posted an article that it was something like young men are having a hard time knowing, you know, what masculinity really is or what a man really is. And then and then the subline to that said, the church can help to teach them. And it wasn't it wasn't a Catholic website, it was an evangelical, you know, website. The church can help to teach them. And now before I was Catholic, I would have thought, well, yeah, you know, um I I I can I can do that. Now, as a Catholic with my Catholic ecclesiology, my impulse when reading that headline was something like, which church do you mean? <laughs> what, what do you mean, the church? Because, you know, in the world that I came out of, I began to see what I was involved in kind of like broken safety glass. Have you guys, you guys know what that looks like, right? A safety glass when it breaks, you know, at an accident scene. It's all glass, but it's in a million different pieces and you can't ever put it back together. It's just shattered. And that's that's my sense, my internal sense of my ecclesial relationship was that I was just part of this massive um, <laughs> uh, pile of broken safety glass. And it, was, it would be impossible uh, to get that all put back together again, the way that it was all set up. And so now when I read the church, my impulse with my Catholic ecclesiology is to do what Irenaeus did in what you just read and say, he's talking about the church that's founded by Christ, the Catholic church. And from that vantage point, what Irenaeus says is possible. And from the vantage point of the fulfillment of Jesus's prayer, that's possible if there really is one holy Catholic and apostolic church founded by Jesus that's still present in the world today, both visibly and spiritually. That's as much as I'll say there. Yeah, there's an article I'd point people to in our October newsletter. Um, and you can go to CH newsletter or I'm sorry, chnetwork.org slash join if you want to sign up for our newsletter. It's free. There's a there's a conversion story every month, usually a couple of articles, page of prayer requests, all but it's a it's a great resource. It's like the coolest free thing that I know of. Um, and Jeffrey Schott addresses this question. You know, there's a lot of verses that cause people to really, you know, kind of ponder or, and long for and, and bring them to a crisis point. And one of the ones that, that comes up a lot, but I don't think we talk about enough, is, uh, is one that's come up recently at the Sunday Mass reading. It's a gospel reading from Matthew 18, uh, where Jesus is talking about what to do with a brother who sins against you. And 
you know, first you go to him and you talk about it privately. And if you won't listen, you grab a couple friends and uh, then you go and you address the matter with him, with you and your couple friends. And then if he won't listen to that, you take it to the church. <laughs> right? Right. Well, let's say you're in an office and you go to, you know, the Baptist church. Your friend goes to the non-denominational church. Another coworker goes to Methodist church. You all have kind of like an office Bible study. And it comes up at some point like, hey, man, Bob, the non-denominational guy, is living in a situation that is not good. And somebody needs to say something to him. You know, and somebody says, ah, I'll, go, I'll go talk to him. And then you go talk to him, no headway. And then you're like, well, maybe me, you know, from my Presbyterian church and, and you from your, you know, Pentecostal church, we'll go talk to him. And it's no headway with Bob. And they're like, okay, well, Bible says we got to take it to the church. Well, which church? Do we take it to Bob's church? Uh, maybe Bob's church doesn't have a moral problem with this. Wait, right. do we take it to, to my pastor? Like, Bob doesn't even go to my church. <laughs> you know what I mean? The, the dilemmas that are, that are sort of built into this, it's clear that Jesus intended for, well, as St. Irenaeus indicates was the case in 180-something A.D., for the church to be able to speak with one mouth, um, not just about, like, theological matters, but but in disciplinary matters, too. Like, they're, they're, this is, it's clear that Jesus wanted something like this from the beginning. Right, uh, right, right, right. Yeah, amen. And, yeah. and, you know, all of that, you know, that you shared, Ken and, and Matt, gives way, if I can keep us moving, because we have two more sections to read, to now this next piece of the catechism in which um, the church then is identified as— uh, as the universal sacrament of salvation, kind of, kind of grabbing wow. onto what you just shared, Ken. It's the missionary people of God, present in and visible in the world, expressing God's heart to the whole world as that one people. And then this mm -hmm. whole idea is unpacked in that section of the Catechism. If I can say it this way, uh, the so what of what you just read, Ken, is expressed in the next section as now. Uh, here's the church's mission. So here it is, and I'm, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to read these paragraphs and share a few things, and then we can discuss them. Beginning with paragraph 774, the Greek word mysterion was translated into Latin by two terms, mysterium and sacramentum. In later usage, the term sacramentum emphasized the visible sign of the hidden reality of salvation, which was indicated by the term mysterium. In this sense, Christ himself is the mystery of salvation, for there is no other mystery of God except Christ. The saving work of his holy and sanctifying humanity is the sacrament of salvation, which is revealed and active in the church's sacraments, uh, which the Eastern churches also call the holy mysteries. The seven sacraments are the signs and instruments by which the Holy Spirit spreads the grace of Christ the head throughout the church, which is his body, I got to pause right here and say this. Another way of saying that is, how is Jesus or how is God in Christ present to his church? The catechism says, through the seven sacraments. Great. Okay, well then, how is God in Christ present to the world? This is the question that's now being answered in this next part. It says, uh, the church, which is his body then, both contains and communicates the invisible grace she signifies. It is in this analogical sense that the church is called a sacrament. In other words, the church then 
becomes the visible presence of God, the visible hand of Jesus to the world. Uh, it is the sacrament of salvation. Paragraph 775. The church in Christ is like a sacrament, a sign and instrument, that is, of communion with God and of unity among men. The church's first purpose is to be the sacrament of the inner union of men with God. Because men's communion with one another is rooted in that union with God. The church is also the sacrament of the unity of the human race. In her, this unity is already begun, since she gathers men from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues. At the same time, the church is the sign and instrument of the full realization of the unity yet to come. That goes back to kind of what we talked about earlier. Well, what, is, yeah. what would the world look like if the, that early human vocation of dominion and fruitfulness and multiplication came to fruition? Well, it would look like the future that the Bible envisions through Christ and his union with his church. Finally, paragraph 776. As sacrament, the church is Christ's instrument. She is taken up by him also as the instrument for the salvation of all. The universal sacrament of salvation by which Christ is at once manifesting and actualizing the mystery of God's love for men. The church is the visible plan of God's love for humanity. That's just a, a, an earth-shattering little theological ecclesial statement there. The church is the visible plan of God's love for humanity because God desires that the whole human race, this is what you shared earlier, Ken, that the whole human race may become one people of God from one body of Christ and be built up into one temple in the Holy Spirit. Close quote on that section oh of the catechism. So, so, so what is happening here in the section of the catechism is the, the, if I can say, the logical outworking of everything that has come before it, which is like, what is God up to? God is up to his original plan for this world. How is he going to fulfill it? Well, ultimately, through bridegroom and bride in unity with one another, uh, bringing forth children and subduing the whole world and bringing it into union with God. And this, says Paul, this mystery has been revealed as what God is doing through Christ and his church. If I can say a final thought here then, this section of the catechism strikes me as the place where we are identified as God's, not only God's bride, as the bride of Christ, but as God's missionary people. And more than that, God's the, the presence of Jesus in the world this goes back to what we said in the Mass when we were dismissed. Dismissed. Matt brought this out. You're sent on your mission. Go forth and proclaim the good news, or go forth and be the missionary people of, of God in the world. God is sending the church into the world to be his very presence with humanity. And I'll just stop right there. I, these okay, The thing that blowing, was blowing my mind as you were reading these last few paragraphs is how they just keep rehashing these themes that we've covered already in this episode, but in in new ways, in beautiful ways. And this last sentence, the church is the visible plan of God's love for humanity. It's the visible, in 
in concrete the visible plan of God's love for humanity because mm. God desires that the whole human race may become one people of God, form one body of Christ, and be built up into one temple of the Holy Spirit. And it, a thought comes to my mind. Okay, you know, again, back to Luke and back to Acts. You know, the Luke is about the gospel of Luke is about all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until he was taken up. Remember, once I am, uh, what what does he say there where he says, and once I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus, as Jesus by himself, could not walk all over the Middle East and all over Asia and all over Russia and, and go across the Bering Straits and, and you know, and, and down through Alaska and Canada and the United. Jesus can't walk around and touch every person himself. So he ascends right. to the right hand of the Father and he pours his spirit into his church and and the church is to go out and be the 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 extension of the incarnation to the whole world. Um, yes. The the sacrament of salvation. And one one thing, when I think of the church as being the sacrament of salvation, another aspect pops into my mind, and that is that we are to be eaten. The church is to be right. gobbled up, to be gobbled yes. up by the world, by the, by, by the world. Yes. Yeah, it reminds me of a song. I, I'm st still learning all the Catholic songs, but uh, one of the lines is, you know, let us be bread, you know. It's the whole mm -hmm, idea mm -hmm. that we, what we partake, like, like I think Augustine said, become what you see, you know, like yeah. you, you become the bread that is now shared with all the nations so that they can eat, so they can have communion and come back mm -hmm. into union with God, which is what he always wanted. And the church is that instrument of God. It's really the hand <laughs> that, that punches through the heavenly yeah. places and comes into the earthly places and grabs yeah. humanity and says, come back to God. You know, the church is that uh, in the world. Well, I mean, that's that idea of bread is actually, I mean, it's not, it's not new to some English speaking person songwriter, right? I mean, it's in the martyrdoms of Ignatius and Polycarp talking about being like ground like wheat, you know, yes, and yes. people reporting that they smell like yeah. it was bread baking <laughs> when these guys were burned <laughs> at the stake. Um, yeah. The, so good. I want to go back to um, to paragraph 774. Just make a, a quick note about sacraments. I know, Ken, you're really going to bring this home here in a minute. Um, but where in 774 it says, the seven sacraments are the signs and instruments by which the Holy Spirit spreads the grace of Christ the head throughout the church, which is his body. I just want to key in on that idea of the sacraments being both signs and instruments. Because uh, right. if, you're, if you're just joining us uh, from Protestantism <laughs> right now, the seven sacraments are, you know, baptism. The Eucharist, marriage, confirmation, confession, right? Uh, they're the anointing of the sick, holy orders. These are the sacraments, right? And for someone to look at what the Catholic Church teaches about the Eucharist and say, well, the church, Catholics don't believe the Eucharist is a symbol. They believe it's a sacrament. Well, actually, we believe it's both. Um, we believe it's a symbol that is the thing that it represents. Symbol being like the physical mm -hmm. token that is sort of emblematic of a greater reality. Right. Well, we believe that the symbol actually, right. in this case, in the case of the Eucharist, is the thing that it represents. So when it says here, 774, right. the sacraments are the signs and the instruments by which the Holy right. Spirit spreads the yeah. grace of Christ. So when we say that the church is a sacrament, we're saying that the church is not just like this sort of representation, like kind of like a visible representation of what our real mm -hmm. relationship with God is like. 
Uh, no, it is both the sign and the instrument of that relationship. Yes. <laughs> it's both yeah. the symbol of it and it's the reality of it. So that's just a, I mean, we can only get yeah, into so much sacramental good. theology here, but I feel like that's an important thing to highlight in case you're just like, in case you're coming from a completely non-sacramental <laughs> uh, place. Yeah, like when, and when you say sign and reality, we could replace that with the words that I've been using earlier, that it's the place where God's plan is revealed, sign, mm-hmm. and fulfilled the reality it's in the where church. God, okay. It's where God is acting. Uh, just a final thought, and then it's yeah. it's off. You're off to the races. You're off to the races, Ken. But it, you know, we talk as Catholics about the Eucharist as the real presence of Jesus in the gathered assembly of God's people. This ecclesial theology in the Catechism yeah. is saying the Church then is the real presence of Jesus in the world, in the whole world. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I am off to the races. In fact. You know, having my eye on the clock here, you know, uh, this is what I want to say. In paragraph 777 through 780, what happens in that section is simply to recap, actually not not what we've talked about in this episode, but what we've talked about in the last three episodes are recapped there. And so I'm just going to encourage those of you who are following along to get your catechism on the side and read 777 through 780 to recap, mm-hmm. um, rather than going through all the detail that's here. And I want to close by simply re- relating this to my own experience again, you guys, because when I was a Baptist, um, when I think about this, the church's spiritual and physical, uh, spiritual and visible, and again, I believed both. I believed the church was visible, and I believed the church was spiritual. I believed the church was the body of Christ, talked about it all the time. I believed the church was the bride of Christ. I believed that the church was the place where people were going to see Christ, hear Christ, learn of Christ, and come to Christ. I believe those things. But, well, first of all, visibility. When I think about it, the visible nature of the church was almost, here's the phrase I've come up with, in my mind, it was almost an artifact of regeneration. Okay, now it sounds kind of weird. It was just simply an artifact of regeneration. And what I mean by that right. is that God was going throughout the world sovereignly regenerating certain people, you know, those he had chosen before the foundation of the earth, you know, unlimited, I mean, uh, you, know, you know, unconditional election. And then he just reached down and regenerated them. And then they would simply begin to gather together and that's why there was a visible church because they had to gather together so they could pray and so they could read the Bible and talk. And then because you you need to have someone over them and teaching them, they ordained pastors. But it, it's almost like that's an artifact of of the real thing, which is God regenerating people. And and here's the problem though. And this brings in sola scriptura. It brings in the fragmentation of the church and all that. All of the things we've described to, to today, you guys, the church cannot be those things when the church is not one church. Right. When, when yes. the church is not one visible entity, it can't be those things. You can't have the church fulfilling the images that we've been looking at today and fulfilling the idea of being the place where God's plan to bring together all things in Christ is revealed and is fulfilled. It can't be that if you have hundreds and hundreds of separate entities that don't even agree with each other, often on important doctrines, and therefore don't mm-hmm. work together, don't call people to the, you know, they, they, they're each calling people to themselves. 
And then they're all calling people out of themselves into them other selves and the other groups from one group to another, the sheep stealing thing and all of that. It cannot be that. And then it, it strikes me that it's not that. Now, of course, sin is an issue that's going to affect everyone. It affects the Catholic Church too. The sin of, of people within the church is going to have a d- deleterious effect on the role of the church in the world. But when you add to it the whammy of there not even being one church, but instead there being just this plethora of different groups saying different things, calling people to different things, you just realize it cannot be that. And so that was another argument in my mind that the church has to be one church. It had to be, this had to be what Jesus wants is one church. And it has to be a visible entity, therefore, because there's no way you can hold together all of these regenerate. I mean, if all you have is millions of regenerate individuals, they are going to meet together and they're going to read their Bibles and they're going to disagree and they're going to split up and you're going to have hundreds and thousands of churches. So it, it, it it's like one step logically follows the other. There has to be one visible church with a system, a structure of authority that can hold the church together and, and make it one church. So all I'm saying by that is is hearing all these images again and seeing them all is to me part of part of the case that just drove me in the direction of the Catholic Church ultimately. Anything for you guys closing up? Just just amen to that, Ken. Just amen. You know, I go back to the question I asked a couple episodes ago. Where is the church in the you know today in the world? in the Bible, the church that's in the Bible that can do all these things. Where is that church? And um, boy, this, the the catechism (laughs) and our Catholic ecclesiology is doing a, a lot of heavy lifting to answer that important question. And all I'll say on this is, uh, you know, when I was looking around and frustrated at those divisions, I longed for a church that could say what the Catholic church says about herself. But there was no way, and I knew there was no way <laughs> that we could say that. Um, yeah. But I knew that Jesus. This is what Jesus wanted the church to say, be able to say about herself. So uh, yeah, that's my remark on the matter, gentlemen. This has been an intense one, a mysterious one, yeah. as it were. <laughs> uh, I encourage people to go back and watch previous episodes in this series on the church. You can go to chnetwork.org to find some of those. Subscribe if you. You know, want to get updated when the next one comes out. Uh, you can also go to community.chnetwork.org. That's our online community. It's kind of a closed space that we sort of try and keep on track, uh, mostly just for people who are searching and uh, maybe people who have come into the church or coming towards the church, the Catholic Church, uh, from different backgrounds. And, of course, uh, we are donor-supported. Uh, everything we intend to give you is hopefully going to be free because of that support. So if you want to help support us, go to chnetwork.org slash compass that's chnetwork.org slash compass gentlemen thank you again have a wonderful day okay we'll see you next week bye guys 